0: Um, we're continuing on in our series of James. We're going to be in James chapter 2. I hope you have a handout. Uh, I really feel like tonight's message is going to help some folks. I, I really, really do. Uh, it, 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 I enjoyed the process of studying for tonight's message. We're going to be talking about the issue that, of a faith that works. A faith that works. Remember, the, the whole theme of the book of James is about what does real faith look like? Uh, we talked about how, how real faith is a faith that last, uh, a couple weeks ago, not last week, because that was VBS. Uh, if you came last week thinking we're having Bible study, you were in for a surprise. Uh, uh, but last week we had VBS. Week before, we talked about how James said we shouldn't show favoritism. We talked about the issue of real faith is a faith that doesn't show favoritism, prejudice, racism. It's a faith that uh, we, are, we are birthmarked as believers with love. That is, that is what dignifies, separation. Us from the world is that we we have the birthmark of love on our life, and that's how we should treat others. And tonight we're going to be looking at what does real faith look like? It's a faith that works. So if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter two, and we're going to start by reading verses uh, fourteen through seventeen. But we're going to cover a lot more than that. Uh, But starting in verse fourteen, he says, "What doth it profit, my brethren?" Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Let's pray. My Father, we thank you again for this night. Lord, I am so thankful for a church that um, just loves Your Word and wants to go deep, wants to know more. And so, Lord, I pray that we uh, just honor You tonight as we study Your Word. Lord, that You would speak to us, bring some truth to us that maybe we've never seen before. Help us apply it to our lives and carry it with us everywhere we go. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as always, that You pour into me. Lord, uh, this, anything I do without You is in vain. And so, Lord, I just surrender to your will tonight, Lord, that you would use me, humble me. Lord, uh, you take center stage. And Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, you can be seated. We're going to start with a little test. So I need need some interaction. I need y'all to respond vocally out there at Fairview. You participate as well. Uh, I'm going to show a picture on the screen of a tree. And I want you, when you see that picture, I want you to tell me what kind of tree it is. All right, simple. It's simple. Okay, are we ready? We're going we're gonna to put a picture on the tree. Tell me what kind of tree that is. Orange. That's an orange tree. Very good. Look, y'all are smart. Y'all are so smart. All right, how, how about this, this, this next tree? It's still an orange tree, ain't it? <laughs> y'all thought I was going to try to trick you. All right, we might be frozen back there. Let's see. Is it frozen? this was like the whole thing, man. I was like going to build off of this and like it was going to be awesome. All right, whatever. We'll have to move on. Um, the next picture was a different kind of tree that y'all would have to guess. And then it would be a different type of tree after that that y'all would have to guess. The whole principle behind it was this. How can you tell what kind of tree it is? By its fruit. By its fruit. Uh, It's it's obvious when you look at a tree that's bearing fruit, you can look at it and say, well, that's an orange tree. That's a lemon tree. That's an apple tree. By obvious of what kind of fruit is on that tree. And so what James is going to be asking or or approaching is he's going to be talking a lot about works, works. And, And really, that's kind of how we would dignify a tree is by the fruit it produces. The same thing, if someone was to watch your life and look at your life There should be some kind of evidence by watching your life. They could say, man, that person, man, they they love Jesus. They love Jesus. And it's because of the type of evidence, our works, our fruit that is in your life. Uh, In James chapter two, we're going to be reading about 12 verses total. And in those 12 verses, he's going to say the word faith 13 times. He's going to say the word works 11 times. And so obviously he's trying to tie in the idea that there is a relationship between faith and works. Uh, And James is going to be teaching that the early believers uh, and to us as well, that works alone do not save us. And a lot of people get the book of James and they kind of twist it out of context to make you believe that somehow our salvation is, is hinged on the works that we produce. And that's not really what James is teaching at all. He's saying they're a relationship. They go hand in hand. And uh, James is not a salvation text as much as it is a sign text. Here are the signs of salvation. So uh, if you have your handout, we're just going to jump right in. And the very first point I want to I get to is that faith alone saves. Faith alone saves. This is a major teaching by the Apostle Paul. He says, by faith alone, grace alone. Um, The way that we know we come to right relationship with God is through our faith, through grace alone, faith alone. But one of the biggest questions that humanity asks is the question, how can I know I am right with God? how, How do I know I am right with God? Everyone in here and everyone at Fairview, I'm sure, has been to a funeral before. And probably more funerals than you would ever want to be at. And and honestly, that is um, one of the hardest parts about being a pastor. Uh, I I, I really, man, I I empathize too much. You know, like I, I, I really that's the hardest part about being a pastor is going to funerals. And it's not that I don't enjoy being around people. It's not that I don't enjoy being there as a help for people when they're grieving but there's times where I don't even know the person being buried, but yet I find myself being emotional because of just the emotion of the, of the whole environment. You know, I just calls to memory other loved ones that I knew personally that passed away. And you kind of start kind of relating that experience to that. But I remember the time that my own mortality, the reality of my own mortality hit me the hardest. It was, um, man, years and years ago when my great uncle Lee passed away. My Uncle Lee had Down Syndrome. Uh, man, he was funny. Funny guy. He was quirky. Um, I remember one time, uh, minivans had just come out with the remote entry doors where you could press the button and the side door would open. I don't know if you all ever seen that. You just press the button and it would open and it would close. And so my granddaddy was messing with my Uncle Lee. He says, Lee, you want to see a magic trick? He's like, yes. And so my, my granddaddy put his hand in his pocket and hit that button. And he said, Abracadabra. And that door opened. And my Uncle Lee, man, his jaw dropped. <laughs> he said, how'd you do that? And he says, I'll make it close. He says, Abracadabra. And the door closed. And he said, there's someone in there. Uh, and like that was how he solved the problem. One time we went to Uncle Lee. He, he lived in like an assisted living apartment. Like he was independent, but he still would have people come check in on him. And one time me and my granddaddy went to check in on my Uncle Lee and there was uh, three gallons of milk. Three separate jugs of gallon milk in his refrigerator. He lived alone. All right. And he didn't drink that much milk. And so we looked at the refrigerator, saw three gallons of milk. And we said, Lee, how are you going to drink that much milk? And very calmly, he said, fast. (laughs) So that's just the kind of person he was. He was, he, uh, but he lived longer, way longer than the doctors ever thought he would. Doctors thought he would be uh, no contributor of society. They just thought he would be a burden. I actually tried to convince my great-grandmother to put him in a home uh, right off the bat, said it's going to be too much of a burden. But my, grandmother, my great-grandmother loved my Uncle Lee. And then the day came where he passed. And I remember going to the funeral, and then after the funeral was the graveside service. And I remember at the graveside service, this is where my own mortality hit me the hardest, because I saw a tombstone with, in big, bold letters, the name Heptonstall. And I was like, that's my name. And it like, I don't know, I I was just a teenager. But I remember just this feeling washing over me that I will die one day. Like I am not, I'm not here to stay. Like we all, we all have been given the borrowed breath of God. And there's one day where God's going to say, give me my breath back and we will be taken from this life to the next. But the reality of my own mortality hit me so hard in that moment. And I was like, man, life is quick. And so in those moments, at funerals especially, people begin to question the idea about their own mortality and what is after this life and how do I know for sure I can be right with God. And, and here is, here's how every other religion on the earth answers that question, how can I be right with God? They answer it with one word, and the word is do. You've got to do something. You've got to earn it. Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, if it's the seven sacraments of Catholicism, if it's karma and Eastern mythicism, if it's uh, even in the Americanized uh, Christian culture that we live in today that we have to abide by a certain moral code in order to be right with God. And so their answer is, unless you're consistently doing all the right things at all the right times, then you can never know if you're all right with God. That's a terrible way to live, isn't it? I mean, that's that's a terrible way to live, to never know if you're actually right with God. But the gospel of Jesus teaches something different. The gospel of Jesus teaches us that there is a way to be right with God. And it also answers that question with one word. And that word is done. Not do. It's done. It is finished. Consider this. Consider this. Is it really good news if there's still something you got to do? I mean, is it really good news if there's still... Listen, I got myself into this mess. If it's dependent upon me to get myself out of this mess, I'm in trouble. That's not good news. And the word gospel in the Greek literally means good news. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, before he took his last breath and gave up the ghost, the very word he spoke was tetelestai, which means it is finished, done. So everything that was needed to be done in order for you and I to be accepted by God, to be adopted into his family, everything that needed to be done was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. All you have to do is accept it and believe it by faith. In Ephesians, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Hopefully our computers are back acting normal again. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 Paul says, for by grace, grace, grace is saying God has already done something on your account. He's done something for you. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if you and I had to do anything to earn salvation, it would no longer be a gift, wouldn't it? Right. Like a gift is something freely given, not something you earn. And so he says "Is a gift. Lest any man should boast. In other words, nobody in here has the right to walk in peacocking like they've done something. Nobody has the right to act holier than thou because all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We were all on the same playing field. And so nobody is better than anybody else. We brought nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. Let let me show you what Jesus talks about in in, uh, John chapter 3. Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. He comes and visits him at night. And Nicodemus is asking him some questions, and Jesus begins to talk to Nicodemus about salvation. And and Nicodemus is kind of confused, because Jesus is saying you have to be born again in order to come into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, how can a man when he is old be born again? Does he go back into his mother's womb to be born? And Jesus is like, no, idiot. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's like, no, he says this, this is how, and then in, in John chapter three, verse six, this is what Jesus says. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So I have a question out there. Fair of you. You can raise your hand if this applies to you, but in here in this room, has there any, is there anybody in here in the balcony anywhere that contributed anything to your physical birth? Any, anybody can raise their hand and say, yeah, I contributed to my physical birth. Nobody, right? Like you, you weren't telling mom like, hey, let's go. Yeah. Like you didn't, you didn't do the operation yourself. You didn't just like emerge. All right. You, just, the, you did nothing when it comes to your physical birth. And what Jesus is trying to illustrate here is when it comes to your spiritual birth, you don't do anything either. As much effort you put into your physical birth is as much effort you contribute to your spiritual birth. You do nothing. You bring nothing to the table. And so (laughs) this idea that we have to earn it is false. Jesus did it all. Everything we needed in order to be saved was accomplished through Jesus Christ. The work was already done. matter of fact, James, in James chapter 2, verse 23, he quotes from Genesis chapter 15. So in James chapter 2, verse 23, he says the scripture was fulfilled, which saith um, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. The scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So two things, two things are being discussed here. Number one, number one is saying Abraham believed. Abraham believed. Now, believed is the verb form of the word faith. It is faith in action. It's putting what you believe into action. And what, what did Abraham do? He believed. What did Abraham believe? He believed God, right? That's who he believed. So there is one way. We get it messed up sometimes. We think there's alternate ways from the Old Testament to New Testament that people got saved. But there is one way from Genesis to Revelation that anyone can be saved, and that is by faith. Some people think, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved because they followed the law. That's how they were saved in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, and they're saved by faith. And that's not right at all. It says that Abraham had faith and it was imputed unto him righteousness. So the difference was when Abraham had faith, what he was doing was he was looking forward to the promise of God. God said he was going to send a Messiah. That Messiah was going to reconcile and redeem a lost and broken world unto himself. So Abraham was clinging in faith to the promise that was in the future. He was looking forward to that promise. What's different about our faith is we're looking back on the fulfillment of that promise. It is not just a promise, but now it is a person. The fulfillment of that promise was Jesus Christ. But it was still faith from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's still faith. Abraham looked forward to the promise. We look back to the fulfillment of that promise. Does that make sense? Okay, so you and I are saved by faith. So we see, number one, Abraham believed But also James is saying it was imputed unto him as righteousness. That word imputed means to give credit. It was put on his account. So it says by faith Abraham trusted in the promise of God and God did something to Abraham's account. You and I, when we put our faith in Jesus and what Jesus did, God, by his mercy and his grace, puts onto our account what we do not deserve. Wow. Amen. So mercy, mercy, the idea of mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is the idea of God giving us what we don't deserve. So mercy is holding back what we deserve. Grace is giving what we don't deserve. And so what did we deserve? Well, we deserved hell, wrath of God, judgment, separation from him. But God's mercy keeps that from us. Now, what did we not deserve? We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve right relationship with God. We don't deserve blessings. We don't deserve his favor. But God's grace gives that to us. So think of it this way. Let's put it in a logical, tangible way that everybody can hold. Let's say you have a bank account with negative $1 billion. Yeah. That is a sum too great for most of us in this room, <laughs> there might be a billionaire hiding in here somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I doubt it, though. But that is a sum too great for anybody in this room to ever pay off. Right. So think of it. You have on your spiritual account negative $1 billion, a sum too big for you to ever earn to pay off. But God, in his mercy, canceled your debt. He, he extinguished the $1 billion in, in debt, and he brought you to a zero balance. That's good news. That's good news, right? Here's the problem. You still broke. (laughs) You still have zero dollars. You still broke. And so what God does through His grace is He puts onto your account an infinite amount that you could never earn on your own. He puts an, a, an amount on your credit that is far in favor, far beyond anything that you could ever earn. And so in his mercy, he takes a, a, a debt too large for us to pay. And in his grace, he gives us a credit too large for us to earn. Does that make sense? Boy, I'm preaching good. Y'all are quiet. All right. I'm, I'm just saying this is good stuff. I, I need some ameners in here. So here's what this means. When God looks at your account, do you know what He sees. Done. Right. Done. Amen. Finished. And this is what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. He says, "For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him." Thank you, Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of your sin. All of your unworthiness, every angry word, every wrong deed, every lustful thought. He took it upon himself. He took it all on the cross. Jesus, the only one who's ever lived a perfect life, a life I could not ever live. He took it and then Jesus offered his body, his own body as a substitute for my sin. And he took everything. Listen to me. He took everything that God hated about you. And put it on himself as if he was the one who offended it. And then he drank the full wrath of God against sin upon himself. And then he died. He didn't stay dead though. He rose again showing that God accepted his sacrifice for the atonement of sin of all mankind. And here's what basically happened is on his death he wrote the check for my sin. At his resurrection the check cleared. He's saying payment is good. So now you and I, by faith, can grab a hold of the promise that is in Jesus Christ that his atonement was enough for you and I. And what gets credited to us is his righteousness is put on our account. That's good stuff. So think about this. If you and I were to be in heaven for 10,000 years, you would not be any more righteous than you are right now. Yep. 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 Somehow we think we got to keep earning it right. and keep working at it and keep striving and keep grinding. But when God sees you, He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right. And even if you were in heaven 10,000 years, you would not be any more righteous than you are right now in Christ. How can you get any more righteous than God Himself? And you might ask, why would God do this? Here's the mind-blowing answer to that. Because he loved you. That's right. Amen. Let that marinate for a second. God loves you. Amen. So we see, number one, faith alone saves. But secondly, number two, the faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is never alone. And this is what James is teaching. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Right. It's faith alone that saves, but it is never faith alone that saves, or it's never faith that saves is never alone. Look at verse 14. Three times in this passage of James, uh, 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 he's going to be referring to this idea that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Look, look at verse 14 of chapter two. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? In other words, how can someone say, I have faith, but there's no evidence? There's no no outshowing of that. There's no working out of that faith. How can someone say, uh, yes, I have faith, but there's no evidence? James is saying, yes, it's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Look at verse 17. Even so, faith... Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Verse 26. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Works means something done. It is the outward visible evidence of an inward saving faith. That's what works are. It's an outward visible evidence of an inward saving faith. And so works do not earn our salvation. Works give evidence of our salvation that has been received to us through Christ and our faith in Him. So that's what faith, that's what works are. It's an outward showing of an inward faith. Let's refer back to Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith and that of, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Many times we stop right there and we're like, amen, yeah. I'm good. Not of works. Grace alone, faith alone. Hallelujah. And then we stop reading. But if you look at verse 10, right. verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So what are these works? What are these works? Uh, Let's simplify it. I'm going to boil it down to its most simple, basic form. If we were, anytime you see the word works or good works or the works from salvation, any of those words, it boils down to this. And I think you have in your handout some blanks. This is what works are. It's the life of Jesus in me being lived through me that's what works are the life of jesus in me being lived through me faith alone saves but the life of jesus in me lives through me it's like that old story i, I mean i've heard it so many times but about the little girl in sunday school class and the little girl's talking to the teacher and she says teacher if if jesus lives in my heart and he's so big and i'm so little shouldn't he be poking out somewhere And that is the reality of how our life should be. If Jesus is in you, he should be poking out somewhere. He should be visible somewhere in your life. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. It's one thing to talk about faith. It's another thing about putting that faith into practice. Living that faith out. Where there is no active faith, where there is no active love, there is no real faith. Um, So the question is not, can... Can faith save the lost? Yes, faith can save the lost. Amen. The question is, can a faith that was that is without evidence save the lost? And the answer is no. Now you might be saying, what about the thief on the cross, brother? He didn't have time. All right, I mean, he was hanging on. He was dead. All right, like minutes. Uh, and do I believe that there could be deathbed confessionals? People taking their last... Moments of breath before they pass on from this life to the next. Do I believe people can get saved in that moment? Absolutely. But for us who are alive and breathing and functioning every day, if you say you have faith and there is zero evidence or outpouring or outshowing of that faith in your life, I would really question if you have saving faith. James said it's dead. Faith that is in words alone is of no use at all. Truth, uh, true faith is not just a feel-good In the moment I got emotional. I made a profession of faith that it's it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Let let me give you three, three defining statements. Let me give you three defining statements about faith and works. The first one is it is through faith alone that I have been saved. It is through faith alone that I have been saved. We've been talking a lot about that already. I mean, we've already, we've already really talked about that. But I want us in this room, I want those out of Fairview, we're going to read that statement together. Because I really want y'all to have this resonate in your spirit. Alright, so here we go. We'll read it together. Ready? It is through faith alone that I have been saved. Faith alone. Now the second statement I want to say about faith and works is this. Being saved by faith means God is now changing me. Being saved by faith means now that God is changing me. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Go ahead and get primed. We'll get there in a moment. But it's a faith that is changing me. Let me say this. Salvation is not a moment. It is a movement. It is a movement. So... How is it a movement? It's a movement of God that begins in your life at the moment that you place faith in Jesus. But from now, from the moment you put your faith in Jesus all the way until you step into eternity, there is a movement in your life and where he is trying to create in you the image of Christ. And so when you get saved, you don't just stay there. There is a movement as he is moving you towards becoming more and more like Christ. It is a faith that saves us. is also the faith that changes us. Yes. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That, that word are changed. We are, we are changed. That means it's an ongoing action. It means it doesn't stop. It means there's always movement. Now here's the deal. When I put my faith in Jesus, positionally before God, positionally before God, I am as righteous as I ever will be. That, that happens the moment I put my faith in Jesus. Boom. Positionally with God, I'm as righteous as I ever be. But before men, before others, before a watching world, what, what is happening is God is working out practically the faith that's in my life that is before him positionally. He's putting it into action. And so I'm being transformed daily into the image of God from glory to glory. The word changed in verse 18 is the Greek word metamorphi. Which is where we get our English word, metamorphosis. In other words, it is an outward change of an inward work. There is movement that happens when you put your faith in Jesus. And here's the good news. The good news is that God will finish that work. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is going to finish what he started. And there's going to be a day, one day that's coming, where we won't have to deal with the stuff that we have today. And here's what it means. The salvation, salvation is not you and I trying our hardest to maintain what we got. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is that it was God at work through us. And he's bringing us in union with Christ, conforming us into his image. And the point that James is trying to drive home in these passages is if there is no evidence, then there is no faith. Because if God is in you, there should be some kind of movement coming out of you to be conformed to the image of Christ. You cannot stay the same. There has to be a change. There has to be a work that is created in your life that is evidence of a change has happened internally that is shown outwardly. Does that make sense? Here's the third statement I want to make about faith and works. As you notice, none of this is alliterated. I just wrote it as it came, all right? So (laughs) deal with it. All right, number three. Works are the change in me spilling out of me That allows others to know my faith is real. Works are the change in me, spilling out of me, that allows others to know my faith is real. Look at verse 24, James chapter 2, verse 24. He says, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now, sometimes people like to preach this as our works are what makes us justified to God. That's how we get in right standing with God is by our works. That's not what James is saying at all. What he's saying is, is that we've already been justified to God the moment we gave our life to Jesus. We, have already, we are in right standing in Christ because of what he's done for us. So the justification that James is speaking about here, the justification that he's speaking about is our, 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 how we live in front of others. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, a watching world, our community around us. In other words, the word justify means to show to be righteous. And so we... It says that by works a man is justified, so it is a outward work that our brothers and sisters in Christ see, our community sees, and therefore it's showing us that we have real saving faith. This is not justifying me before God. I have been declared righteous by God. Positionally, I am where I need to be with God. But as I live out my faith, the righteousness of Christ in me is shown out, justifying my salvation to others. So in, in one aspect, this is going to look different because we're all at different levels, right? Some of y'all have been saved 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Some of y'all have just recently been saved. And so we're all at different paces. We're all at different levels. And so we're, we're kind of walking in this together. And so even though we're at different levels and different paces, ultimately, we'll all come out looking the same. Because ultimately the goal we're working towards Is to be conformed into the image of Christ And so even though some of us are further along than others At the end We're all going to be the same And that's awesome Now, what does that look like in our life today? Well, it looks like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance Fruits of the Spirit Lived out in your life every single day But what does that mean for me and you? Well, for me It means I can't find myself to be holier than thou if I feel like I'm further along than someone else because they're at a different pace than I am. They're at a different level than I am. And also, I don't have to beat myself up when I compare someone, compare myself to someone who's further along than me because we're at different paces. As long as we're being moved daily and to be con- conformed to the image of Christ, even though we're at different paces, there should be a similar smell. <laughs> like we're, we're different, but we should be the same. Right. We're going the same direction. And James gives us an example of how this looks. In James chapter two, verse 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you saying to them, depart in peace. Now, let me make a note here about that phrase, depart in peace. That would be a familiar Jewish saying of dismissal. Kind of like how we would say in English, have a nice day. Right. Have a nice day. And so he, he basically says, depart in peace. And then he says, be warmed and filled. Now, in the Greek language, this would have been read in either the middle or the passive voice. And and let me let me explain that. If it's in the middle voice, it would say, um, go warm and feel yourself. In other words, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. He means the world to me. And you find someone in need and you say, have a nice day. Go fix it yourself. (laughs) Or if it's in the passive voice, it would say basically to go find someone else to help you. In other words, I love Jesus so much. He is my rock. He is he is the rose of Sharon. And then we see someone in need and we say, Have a nice day, go bother someone else. Yep. And James goes on, he says, Notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. James is making it clear. The first obvious evidence that Jesus has come and live inside of me is that he has given me a love and a burden for my brothers and sisters in Christ. James is saying if you hear that there's a brother or sister or someone in need and it doesn't make you want to respond to that, there's nothing inside of you that burdens you, that, that propels you to do something, then the faith that you are professing is dead. And the word dead means without life, useless inoperative in other words if it is a dead faith then it can't be a saving faith Think about it. he said there should be something inside of you that motivates you to do something 1 hey. John chapter 3 verse 17 he says but whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him then he asks a rhetorical question how dwelleth the love of God in him He says, if you see someone, a brother or sister in need, and you do nothing about it, how can you claim the love of God is in you? Now, let me just blow your mind for a second. Right now, James and John is just simply talking about how we should treat believers. He hadn't even got to the point of how we're supposed to talk and and reach to an unchurched, dying, lost world. He's just saying, this is how you should operate with each other. He's drawing a really small circle right now. He's like, start here. And if you, can't, if you can't do that here, there ain't no way you're going to do it out there. I don't, I don't know if that convicts you, but that's the reality of what James is saying. He says, if you can't do this within the church, how in the world are you going to do this outside the church? We have a whole world that we are called to serve. And if we can't even get it right in the church, Lord, help us. Verse 18 of James chapter 2, he says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So now James is given a possible scenario. He's like, let's just say somebody comes up, because you know how we like to have loopholes. We like to have workarounds. You know, if, if, there, if there's a loophole, we're going to try to find it. And so James says, let me give you a scenario. Let's say there's a man who says, hey, you have your works. That's great. I have my faith. That's great. You do your works. I'll do my faith. And ultimately, it's the same expression of the same kind of faith. You're just doing it different ways. You're doing your works. I'm doing my religious stuff over here. But ultimately, it's the same thing. James is saying, nope. It's not either or. He says it's both. You can't say you have works. And over here, this guy says he has faith. No, those things are connected it's both. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. See this paddle? It says works. I don't know if of you can see that. It says works. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat before, but if you have one paddle paddling on one side, what's going to happen? I mean, you're just going to go to circles, right? If we're depending on just our works to get us into heaven... We ain't going nowhere, are we? I mean we're just going in circles. They don't help us a bit. Now here we go. Faith. Okay. Thank Lord for the faith. But again, if I'm in a boat, I'm just going in circles. I'm not making any progress. If I have a faith that has no evidence of that faith, if I'm not doing anything to help my brothers and sisters in Christ, if I'm not living out my faith, then can I really say I have faith? I'm just going in circles. And so this is what James is saying. Here we go. Faith and works. There you oh, yeah. Hand in hand. Yeah. They work together. Hey, they are not separate. They are connected. I put my faith in my works, and my works show my faith. Hallelujah. And this is what James is trying to make it so evident to us, that as believers in Christ, it needs to be more than lip service. Yes. Amen. Here's the danger of a faith-only salvation, or I'm sorry, a works-based salvation. Here's the danger of a works-based salvation. A works-based salvation equals pride. And this is why. Because you are trying to control your own destiny. You're trying to gauge your life against the lives of others. You gauge how good you are based on how bad other people are. And as long as I'm better than them, I'm doing okay. That's why you can go have conversations with people in the community and ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And they say yes. And you ask them, how do you know that? And they say, because I'm a good person but who are they comparing themselves they're comparing themselves to other people and, and so because of that they're blinded they're blinded by their own pride Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 it says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death salvation by works sounds good because we'd like to have a progress report we like to know how good we're doing but that 's why Christianity is so different from all other religions, because it is the only religion that teaches that the work has already been done for you. Right. you don 't have to do the work it 's already been done. Uh, and, and, and also works-based salvation is dangerous because we don 't understand the full depravity of our own life. The unregenerate man doesn 't understand how sinful we really are. Right. Jeremiah 179 he says, "The heart." Is deceitful above all things, and desperately, li- desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the deceit of our own heart keeps us from really seeing how sinful we are, and to a holy God. And somehow, because we don't see how sinful we are and how holy he is, we have tried to manipulate a way to get in right standing with God. But the Bible tells us our good deeds are like filthy rags. I mean, you got dirty hands trying to give clean rags and this is going to get dirty time and time and time again. You can't do anything enough to earn your way into salvation. But here's the danger of a salvation based on faith alone without works. A salvation that is basing on itself without works equals easy believism. Easy believism. Simply saying, I believe in Jesus is not enough to save you. And I know that goes against the grain of a lot of what people teach. And this is going to be hard to hear, but James, I'm telling you, James is really trying to help you here. He's trying to help you understand do you have real saving faith? The person who claims to be a Christian but lives a life in disobedience and rebellion and has no evidence of a true conversion, that faith is dead. You cannot just say, well, one time at VBS when I was seven years old, I raised my hand. That's when I get saved. But you've been living in sin and rebellion and rejection ever since. I'm telling you, your faith is dead. This is why people cannot live in whatever lifestyle they want to live and claim to know Jesus, because it's impossible. The faith that is in you will change you and it will move you to be made into the likeness of Christ. If you simply said, I said a prayer one time, and that's what you're basing your whole salvation on. And there's been no evidence of that in your life. It has not been played out. What has happened is called easy believism. It teaches that since I prayed a prayer one time at some point in my life, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what choices I make. As long as I, I said a prayer one time, I can live in whatever blatant sin I want to live in. It doesn't make a difference. James says that faith is dead. It will not save you. Amen. Yeah. And so with your mouth, here's what happens. A person who believes a faith like that is what I call a Christian atheist. With their mouth, they say God exists. But with their life, they say there is no God. Their actions don't match their words. And so we are justified by grace through faith. And the natural result of a faith in the, in the heart is a result that we all can see. If you truly give in your life to Jesus, it should be evident. It should be visible. And so salvation, the works that follow salvation is not what makes us right with God. It's what gives evidence that we've been saved. And so James will continue, and he'll give two examples. He'll talk about Abraham, and he'll talk about Rahab. Now, if you know anything about these two, they're totally different. (laughs) Abraham was given a promise that he was going to be the father of nations, and through him would come a lineage that would give the offspring, which would one day become the Messiah. It was a promise that through him all nations would be blessed. Rahab was a prostitute. (laughs) Couldn't get any more different. But I like that James brings these two people up. Because what he's trying to say is even though they were different, they had something in common. And the thing that they had in common was a faith that was evident in the way that they lived. Rahab, yeah, she made some bad choices, but through faith, she saved an entire nation and gave them victory over an enemy nation. God used her faith to, to enact his will and his purpose. We see that there was evidence of her faith in the way that she continued to live her life. Abraham, the same way. There's evidence of his faith in the way that he lived his life. And so the reason he's using these two characters, he's saying, basically, it doesn't matter what your background is. As long as there's a faith that has changed you, that's all that matters. Hey. And so the question I have is this point number three. Do you have saving faith? Do you have saving faith? James is addressing something that's taking place in the early church. There were people in the early church saying, yes, I believe, but there was no evidence, no change, no Christ in them being lived through them. And so James is trying to handle this. If there's ever been a moment in the church of America that ever listened to the message of James, it's now. Because there's too many people who claim to know Jesus and continue to live their life the way they want to live their life. That's a dead faith. A profession of a faith with our lips that isn't evident in our lives, while a community is watching, is doing more harm than good. Because they're looking at people who claim to be Christians And they're looking at their life and saying, well, they're doing the same thing I'm doing. So why do I have to go to church? Not realizing that what they have is a dead faith, not the true thing. James lands on a verse that is so important. James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, thou believest there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Let me give three statements about a faith that can save. And we're done. A faith that saves is not just an intellectual faith. It's not just an intellectual faith. Intellectual faith, a faith is a faith that with your knowledge you accept facts about Jesus. You believe in a historical Jesus. You believe that Jesus was God's son. You believe he lived a perfect life. You believed he died. You believe he rose again. You believe he's coming again. That, that is an intellectual faith. Listen, the demons in hell believe that too. Matter of fact, they know it to be true. They've seen it with their own eyes. And, and so that wasn't enough faith to save them. How's it going to be enough faith to save you? It's more than an intellectual faith. A faith that saves is more than an emotional faith. James says that they believe and tremble. That word tremble is the Greek word to bristle. It's like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. In other words, in other words, the demons not only intellectually understood who Jesus was, but they had an emotional response to who Jesus was. They believed it and they trembled. They had an emotional response to Jesus. The church in America is full of people who had an emotional response. They got sad one time. They cried a little. They got chill bumps. And you say, when did you get saved? And you say, well, I cried so hard and I prayed and I stopped crying. That's how I know I'm saved. Listen, that was an emotional response. The demons in hell had an emotional response and they're still down there. A faith that saves is more than intellectual. A faith that saves is more than emotional. Here's what a faith that saves looks like. A faith that saves is volitional. A volitional faith. In other words, it's a surrendering. It's not just an emotional response. It's not just an intellectual response. It's a surrendering of my will to the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus. It's bowing down to him as the supreme authority of my life, turning over my life to him, walking hand in hand with him, searching his will over mine. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. It is that reality that I walk and surrender to him because that is the one thing the demons didn't do. They never bowed the knee to him. So intellectually, they know who he he is. Emotionally, they responded to who he is, but they never bowed the knee. It was never a surrendering. Years ago, my son Carter had, was asking a lot of questions about wanting to be saved. And he's a little guy, you know? I'm like, I was worried about giving him, I don't know, like a false salvation, you know? Because you don't, you deal tenderly with little ones. You want to make sure that they know that they know. I don't ever want them to get to a place where they're confused later on. But he kept asking, and he kept asking, and he kept asking. And uh, so one day we was driving to Huntsville and he brought it up again. And he was sincere. And he says, Daddy, what happens to people who die without knowing Jesus? And I said, well, son, they they go to hell. And he says, well, I guess I'm going to hell. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Like, (laughs) And so I'm like, we're driving to Huntsville. I said, well, let's pray right now. And so he's in the back seat and we said a prayer. And and I thought, man, my son just got saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And I think it was like, was it last year or this year? This year, earlier this year, my son got really emotional and was really heavy on his heart. He says, Dad, I don't think I'm saved. Like, what do you mean? It's like, you remember that time in the car? He's like, yeah. He's like, but I think I just knew all the right answers. I mean, he's a preacher's kid, right? I mean, he's been in church his whole life. Of course he's going to know all the right answers. And he says, Dad, I just think I knew all the right answers, but I don't think I ever really believed it. He said, but I believe it now. And so we're standing at the kitchen counter and and just with the most sincere, sweetest little prayer, he's crying because it went from an intellectual knowledge to a volitional place of God. I surrender. Even at nine years old, he understood what it meant to surrender his life because I make it obviously clear to him. I said, son, do you know what this means? Do you understand what you're about to do? This means that you're saying, Jesus, your Lord. Yeah. And if you're Lord, then I'm doing what you tell me to do. I don't want to live for myself. I said, this, this means from here on out, you're, you're under his authority. And it's like, almost like I'm trying to talk him out of it. You know, I'm like, is this something you sure you want to do? He's like, yes, I want to do this. I, I want, I understand. I want to do this. And so he prayed to receive Christ. And it's, you know, one of the biggest joys of my life to have that opportunity. But, oh man, it just burdens me of how many people are so confused about where they stand with Christ... Because maybe they understand all the knowledge, but they never put their will into submission to His. Maybe they've been basing their salvation on their good works and they feel like they can never do enough. Well, you will never will do enough. Right. Maybe it's because you think, well, I can live however I want to, and you've never been satisfied doing what you want to do, and you think, well, I think I'm saved. Listen, brother, sister in Christ, if there has been no growth in your life towards Christ, and you said a prayer one time in your life 10 years ago, I'm telling you, unless there's movement until you becoming more and more like Christ, yes, we. We move at different paces. Yes, we all grow differently, but I'm telling you, there should be some kind of change from the moment you said yes to Jesus till now. And if there's been no change, then you might want to question your faith and ask yourself, do you have a dead faith? Think about it. So do you have a saving faith? Amen. Do you have that saving faith? Hallelujah. And honestly, I can't answer that question for you. Fairview. you? I can't answer that question for you. But I believe in your heart of hearts right now, you know, you know. Amen. and it's probably something you've been struggling with for a long time right. and you've been uncomfortable about it for a long time and it keeps you up at night. Sometimes you worry about it sometimes. Am I in right standing with God? If there is no evidence, James says, there is no faith.